0: To have the uh, the uh, salvation series back uh, up and running, we're uh, talking about our summer salvation series, which is now spilled into the fall, and here we are. Uh, our guest this week is uh, Dr. Jerry Root. He's the uh, professor of evangelism and director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College, along with Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself. Peter, I'm looking forward to this one.
1: Yeah, gosh, you know we've had so many different kinds of guests bring a different dimension to this the topic of salvation and and the kinds of things Jerry can bring with us. It's going to be a pretty exciting hour.
0: I agree, and uh, Jerry is on our studio line and making time for us today. Jerry, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much. I'm grateful to be with you. Thank I'm you. always grateful to be with people who want to make Jesus known. Mm.
0: Absolutely. Mm. So today we would like to talk about uh, salvation and and how the Holy Spirit participates. It seems to me that the Holy Spirit regenerates, regenerates, and then sanctifies. Uh, but there's also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I've got a whole bunch of questions for you. And that's uh, how I want to start. Peter and I both grew up Catholic. So we remembered as a kid, we'd pray Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I'm thinking, well, I was afraid of ghosts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, Jesus said in the upper room that he was going to go to the Father, but he wasn't going to leave his disciples as orphans. He was going to send to them another helper. In the Greek, there is another of the exact same kind that he was. And we who study the scriptures know that that it, it is God the Holy Spirit, that God is one God, eternally existent in three persons. So he sends Him a resource. And in some senses, the, his instruction, most of the Gospel of John, one quarter of that Gospel is his instruction with the disciples that last night before he's crucified. And it's interesting to me that most of that instruction is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the work that's going to go on after Jesus raises from the dead and ascends the Father. So the Holy Spirit is essential to any kind of Gospel. Witness. So you've got these different terms that we use baptism by the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, and they have to be each, I think, defined clearly. The baptism by the Spirit is the placing of the believer in the body of Christ. If you read 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen well, for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, the body of Christ. And in some senses, becoming part of the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us means that there's a new incarnation going on. The historic incarnation was when God the Son became a man. But now the Holy Spirit takes residence in the body of Christ, the church to do his work in the world. <clears throat> and it is an aorist tense, that passage in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. It happens to the believer the moment they believe. Even Romans affirms that for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, Romans eight fourteen says. And it also says in verse 15, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's baptism of the Spirit placing you into the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit taking residence in your life. The filling of the Spirit's different, though. In Ephesians 5.18, it mentions the fact that we need to be filled with the Spirit. We're commanded. Why is this necessary? Because we, we can get what it says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, uh, 14 through 16, and 3, 1 through 3. We can become like natural people. We can, we're believers, but we're not walking in the Spirit. We're walking in the flesh. And there comes times when we have to confess our sin to God. And after confessing, say, Lord, refill me with your spirit. Don't don't retake residence. He's already there. But fill me with your spirit. I yield my life afresh to you. The passage, Ephesians 518, it's one of the most weird constructions in the Greek New Testament. It basically is a present passive imperative. Present means it should be ongoing. Imperative means it's a command but it's passive. How do you obey a command passively? In essence, it's saying, let this be done to you. Normative Christian life is for you to constantly be saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit for what I've got ahead in these next couple of hours. Fill me with your spirit as I go to work today. Fill me with your spirit as I go home from work and I'm with my family, that I might represent you in a way that would draw others to you. The fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And then the uh, gifts of the Spirit are varied, distributed as the Spirit wills that we might be doing His will in the world. So that that's basically the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Once the Spirit comes into your life, then be sensitive to the prompts of the Spirit. That if the Spirit prompts you to do something, then you, you go do it. And, and if the Spirit prompts you to pay your neighbor's electrical bill when your neighbor's out of work, then go pay your neighbor's electric bill. If the Spirit prompts you to talk to a friend about Christ, talk to that friend about Christ and watch him work in your life. And by the way, I think he gives his prompts economically. If you respond to them, you'll get them with greater frequency, which is always fun.
1: Hmm. Jerry, there's so much to mine into with what you just said in terms of a life that is governed and guided by the spirit sort of in a day in, day out, hourly basis. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. But if we can just back up for a second, what I'm hearing you say is maybe something different then what my, you know some people might have been counseled in is the idea that you get salvation and then at some future date, something happens where you get a baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you're talking about at the moment of conversion, at the moment of saying yes to following Jesus, that the Spirit uh, resides in your life and, and you as part of the body of Christ. So if you can say more about that, the difference between that understanding and maybe somebody who would say, no, the Spirit comes at a later date.
2: Yeah, it seems to me the teaching uh, in Christ is clear in the Upper Room Discourse. You'll have some transition stuff going on in the book of Acts. Acts is a historic book. It begins along the outline, and you will be my witnesses, Ephesians, or, excuse me, Acts 1, 8, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the world. And at each place where the gospel starts to go into that new region, you'll see some special manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That was, I think, to tell the disciples, look, this is happening here. These people are included. The Samaritans matter. The Gentiles matter. And you get to go continue to do ministry in that way. And that was the whole council in Acts 15. That's what it was about. All are included. So the Holy Spirit was moving in that direction. We see something different there. It's not something that I think is normative. It was unique. It was a historic moment, just like Pentecost was a historic moment. So I think, at least as I study the text and as I look at the original, um, it seems to me fairly clear I know there are people who disagree, but um, that's okay. We'll have the debate.
1: (laughs) And it sounds like salvation, then, even as it relates to the Holy Spirit, when you're receiving that at the moment of your conversion, part of the salvation is that there's a different governing uh, of who you are rather than the works of the flesh or the power of sin. Part of salvation is that the Holy Spirit now resides within you as a person and as a body to guide your way of life moving forward.
2: And Jesus makes that claim, too. And John 15, he says, abide in me and bear much fruit. And then he goes on to say, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, he's talking to his disciples. But what he's saying has merit for, for the long haul. And he has ascended to the Father. And so consequently, apart from me, you could do nothing. He sends his Holy Spirit. He makes it very, very clear. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I send you another helper, and it's his Spirit who will guide us into all truth. So I I think that that's that's the text, and I think that that it's clear. And not only that, it gives you great confidence. Because when you go out, let's say you go out and you make a big mistake sharing Jesus with somebody well, don't beat yourself up too much. Learn from the mistake. Go back and ask forgiveness of the person you might not have been too sensitive towards and say to them, I'm asking your forgiveness because I wouldn't want anything that I do to keep you from seeing how deeply you're loved by God. The Holy Spirit allows you to go back and set those things right. But the Holy Spirit also gives you the confidence that there will be a rightness to be set, that the process is going on. I've even had it before where I've shared Jesus with people and they haven't been responsive to the gospel. And, and then I find out years later that they actually came to Jesus and my sharing with them was a, a moment in the process. And you have to believe that if the Holy Spirit is giving us these prompts, he's engineering the thing from on high. He sees the big picture and we're his servants. We're willing to serve him. You go respond to his prompt And and you let the results be up to him. And I think it's wonderful. It's 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 an exciting life. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Even sharing Jesus once with Ronald Reagan, by following a prompt of the Holy Spirit, that was kind of fun.
0: Wow, I'm glad we recorded that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, (laughs) as long as you, every life could be like the Book of Acts if people wanted to follow God.
0: Fantastic. Dr. Jerry Root is our guest today as we're continuing our salvation series, Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit as it relates to salvation. And we're going to take a really short break, but when we come back, we're going to continue with Dr. Jerry Root. Be right back. the show. So glad to have Dr. Jerry Rood as our guest today as we continue our salvation series. Um, Jerry, a question about uh, if a person is questioning whether or not they're born again. I love that passage in Romans 8 where it says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So if you are questioning whether or not you're born again, I my default thought would be, and I could be way wrong, is you probably are born again because people who would be, not, would be thinking about it, would be ones that would already have placed their, their faith in Christ. And they're just wondering whether or not they're born again. People who aren't spiritually motivated aren't going to be sitting around thinking about this.
2: Well, it's interesting to me. Um, my best friend is Roman Catholic, and he and I ran an FCA program at a Catholic high school when we were both coaching football there, and we saw a lot of guys come to Christ. So I know many Roman Catholics who have a strong faith in Jesus, and I know many Protestants who don't. So it's interesting. These, aren't, these things aren't divided across denominational mm-hmm. lines anymore or whatnot. But <clears throat> one time I was talking to a guy, and he, uh, he was, there, there were some guys doing some, something that wasn't right to do. And I said to this guy, how come you're not in there doing that with those guys? And he said, it's against my religion. So I said, well, what religion are you? And he told me he was Roman Catholic. And I said, well, that's great. And I assume then if he's Roman Catholic, he must have respect for the Bible. So you just are on the same page with the person if you don't get in a fight with them, but instead assume the best about them. So I said, isn't it cool what we have in Jesus, that we can know for sure that we can go to heaven when we die? He says, you can't know that. I said, oh, yeah, you can. He says, no, you can't. I said, do you believe the Bible? He says, of course I believe the Bible. I took him to 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. He freaked out. <laughs> he looked at that thing. He came to me. He came to me several weeks later. And he said, I went home that night, and for the next two nights, I was up late into the night looking at those very verses. And he said, all of a sudden, I realized I am accepting the Son. I am trusting his work on the cross for my forgiveness of sins. I have the Son. I have the life. How does he know? The Scripture said it. Trust the Bible. Trust God's Word. And, and, and it was exciting to see this, this change that took place in his life as a result of that. Hmm. We, we, we don't know by virtue of feeling. Feelings come and go. They can be fickle. <clears throat> we know by virtue of the authoritative Word of God, the God who cannot lie, the God who is immutable and unchanging. He isn't fickle. He's not capricious. His Word is constant, and you can build your house on it, Jesus said, because it's like building a house on a rock.
1: Jerry, going back to, in, in light of that conversation you have with a friend and felt led to be uh, to First John 5, uh, you referenced something earlier about the opening of the book of Acts, talking about Jesus saying to his disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And, and you were talking a little bit about uh, sensing the nudges and the prompts of the Spirit as you're filled with power. Is that when you're having a conversation like that, are, are you tapping into some of those sort of prompts and some of those nudges? And with a friend, thinking, "Gosh, where can I take them in this conversation? Where can I lead them to to access God and and the the salvation that's possible there?" I mean, how do you interact with the life of the spirit like that on a day to day basis?
2: Well, yeah, I think that that's it. I think you follow the prompts again. You've, you, I've, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a witnessing experience. Everyone is unique. And all of a sudden, you found that there were ideas that came to you or words, or there was a quote from a book that you remembered out of the blue, and and you say out of the blue, but it was basically, I think, a prompt of the Holy Spirit. And you share that with that person. And, And you see how the conversation goes. I could give you multiple examples of this. But the other thing, too, that's interesting to me is sometimes if it doesn't go well, that it could be that the Holy Spirit is leading you into that situation, that through that situation you might learn that the next 30 situations you'll do better because you learn from that one. So you don't have to always think that the Holy Spirit is going to give you a merit badge and everything's going to go hunky-dory. But there will be something that will be positive in the process. Whether you grow or whether you lead this person to Christ or whether you even nudge this person to take the next step that they need to take in the process of coming to faith
1: and is it possible, Jerry, in the midst of all of that too? I just think that some people probably feel a lot of pressure that they need to share their faith everywhere they go, everywhere they go. Is it possible that you might sense a nudge saying you know now is not the time to break open this box with somebody I mean is it Different than sort of a you know the mechanics of evangelism is to follow the lead of the Spirit in evangelism.
2: If you feel a nudge to share Jesus with somebody, you can bet the enemy's not giving you that urge. Hmm. I, I don't think he does that. But the other the other thing too is I, I've met people a lot of times who think, man, this whole thing is kind of difficult, isn't it? And I go, no, it's not difficult. It's not any more difficult than any other human endeavor. Um, I don't think anybody's very life skilled. Nobody's ready to get married. If you waited till you were, you'd miss out on those joys. Nobody's ready to have children. If you waited till you were, the whole human race would in this generation. <laughs> I think we function awkwardly from the child, that's, the toddler that's learning how to walk, falls down and gets bruised. The five-year-old taking the training wheels <clears throat> off of the two-wheeler, you know, falls down and gets abrasions. Remember when you went from that one schoolroom experience in elementary school to middle school? With six classrooms and a locker that never worked, how awkward you felt. <laughs> it was the most purgatorial period in human development. But the thing the thing is, we're always awkward in any new experience. So a person goes out to share a Christ. They think, I, I should do this, you know. And they go out, and it goes awkwardly. And, and they think, I'm never doing that again. Really? What if the toddler said, well, I fell down. I'm never doing that again. Or the kid riding the bike says, I got an abrasion. I'm never doing that again. Or the person newly married who had an argument with the spouse and said, well, I'm, I'm going to end this. This isn't going to work for me. No, we grow through the awkwardness. We grow through the experience. Why do we do this? An athlete doesn't go out the first day of practice and they're ready to play in the big game. No, they get knocked down. They get bumped and bruised. But they hang in there because something's motivating them. We've got to get back to the motivation in a moment. But all of life, we grow awkwardly. Why is it in evangelism, if we have an awkward situation, we bail and say, this isn't for me? I don't understand it. Sometimes we think you have to have the gift of evangelism. I don't believe that at all. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I do it, and I have it as a high value. My gift is a gift of encouragement. But if if you have the gift of hospitality, do your evangelism around the table. If you have the gift of service, then get your tool chest and go fix people's cars in your neighborhood and and see the doors open up for you to share the gospel with them. If you have the gift of giving, use your resources in a manner that will open doors for you to share the gospel with other people. And so I don't think it has to be difficult, but there's something else. In my quiet time this morning, I was reading in Matthew, and Jesus said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Some people, I think, aren't sharing because their heart's not full of the love of God. It says in 1 John four eighteen, perfect love casts out fear. Imperfect love creates anxiety. If I need, Jesus said, he, he, he told his disciples the great commandment before he gave them the great commission. Our hearts need to be full of the love of God. And as we're cultivating a love for him, we'll start to share, I think, more naturally. You, you, you don't. It, it's not hard to talk about your favorite sports team. It's not hard to talk about your kids. I've never seen a grandmother who didn't have a book, a book of pictures in her purse to talk about those grandkids. And, and it's not obnoxious. It seems right for that grandmother to talk about those things because she loves the kids. And I think we cultivate that love of God. And as we cultivate the love of God, we go out. And as we go out, we learn from our mistakes. So we grow through that awkwardness. Over time, we become skilled at these sorts of things, and it becomes more natural for us. It's a lot of fun, actually.
0: It is fun. I think there's some people that live in a black-and-white world, though, where they're willing to try something once, and if it doesn't go good, well, that's it.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, sure. that, that's sad, isn't it, for it's them? It's very sad. It's sad for them. But it doesn't have to stay like that. They can they can get better if they want to. And, and just they, they they have to be able to be willing to say, I'm I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to see where it goes. <laughs> I remember one time sharing with somebody very early on when I was a Christian, and I was sharing the gospel with them. I said, well, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? And they said, no. And I go, really?
1: <laughs> wow, this is amazing. And Jerry, so in terms of equipping yourself for that kind of process, I mean, we talk about uh, sensing the nudge of the Spirit, and I would love to get into that a little bit more about how you sense that nudge for people that might not know what that is. Uh, But for now, in terms of the equipping, are are there just simple practices you can equip yourself with in terms of being able to share the gospel simply with people?
2: I think so. I think so. Um, So I'm an academic, so reading, I think, is important. The the greater your reading experience, the more you've got to draw on when you share the gospel and connect the gospel with other people. Most of my academic work is on an author named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote 73 books, or at least there are 73 titles under, under his name, 56 during his life. But the others were essays brought together and letters that were published after he died. But he said in his own lifetime and, and wrote it, actually, most of my books are evangelistic. Well, his books were about medieval literary criticism. You know, he'd had his Christian apologetics Certainly, He had novels. He had satire. What did he mean most of his books were evangelistic? And, and he said one time, we don't need more books by Christians about Christianity. We need more books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. Mm. In other words, in some senses, I teach at a Christian liberal arts college, Wheaton College. We say we are teaching students to be faith-integrated, liberal arts-educated. So what does that mean? Well, technically, it means that any subject I study, I'm seeing something of God in that subject. Mm-hmm. And that means every, every subject should cause me to break forth in worship at some moment. Not only that, every subject should motivate me to want to serve other people. It says in the scriptures that God uh, causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He gives harvests in their seasons. We look at the natural world. He served us in this world. He not only placed us here, he resourced us here. We need to go do that. But the other thing is every subject that I study, something of God is present in that subject. And therefore, every subject is a segue to the gospel. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Everything is a segue. And so the more I study, the more I learn about things, the more I learn in conversation with different people. Maybe I'm not a bookish person, but I'm interested in people. But as they ask questions and they learn about people, they learn where the places are that people are ticking.
0: We're going to take a little short break. We'll be right back with Dr. Jerry Root in just a minute. To the show, so glad our our salvation series is continuing. Our special, awesome guest is Dr. Jerry Ritt. He's the professor of evangelism and director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College. And uh, Jerry, I had a question about when uh, when the Holy Spirit comes and and takes up residence in you. I was thinking of uh, Peter, who recently uh, took in a, a guest at his home. He's married with five kids, and there's something that's so wonderful because it opens up the potential for a greater friendship and more of a relationship, but it also uh, will have its own challenges. Uh, so when the person of, of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity comes and takes up residence with you, I would think that'd be fairly traumatic because it's going to change how you live, how you think, and it should be changing you. But uh, talk about maybe some of the challenges that people face as a new believer in Christ.
2: Well, if, a, if spiritual growth was dramatic, like today I'm an infant, infant, I'm an infant in faith, and tomorrow now I'm this uh, person like Moses, just coming down from Mount Sinai, that would be a threat, I think. <laughs> but but <laughs> spiritual growth is like any kind of growth; it happens incrementally. God builds, it says in Isaiah, line upon line, and so on. He builds and he's building in us, and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, causing us to grow in holiness, causing us to grow more like the Lord Jesus, although that can be a bit of a threat, because if God wants to make me more like the Lord Jesus, I know he's got an <laughs> awful lot of work to do. So that's uh, that's maybe a little bit threatening, but nevertheless, the, it's a process. It's a gradual process, and every event becomes part of that process, and gloriously so. And so I, I don't think we have to be threatened by that. Mm -hmm. I think we have to trust, I think we have to trust that God who is leading, God the Holy Spirit who's leading, knows what's up ahead, and He knows exactly what He's doing, and we can have hope in Him.
0: This is the way I was thinking, though, when I think of the Holy Spirit, the the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of me, I think of this uh, person right with me all the time. I mean, uh, and sometimes I'll, I'll hear people praying for me that, you know, Lord, draw near to Bill, and I'm thinking, the Holy Spirit's sitting here with His armor on me right now. I, mean, I think what, you're right. What's with that?
2: No. Well, <laughs> it's, right. it's, a, it's a redundant prayer. When I hear somebody in a church service say, Lord, be with us, I, I know that it's a redundant prayer. I don't in any way judge that person, because that person's doing the best they know how. And it's, it's a lot of pressure sometimes in praying in a congregation in front of a big church full of people. But nevertheless, theologically, to be accurate about it, he's always with us. So you've got this passage in Hebrews thirteen five, and it says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. In the Greek there, there's actually five negatives in those two phrases. So literally the passage says, I will not, I will not leave you. I will not, I will not, I will not forsake you. You can be confident he's going to be with you. He said he would be with you. And you know what? Sometimes that's, that doesn't mean that everything is a cakewalk. You know, he he, he was with the disciples during difficult times. You, you got Peter and James, and they're thrown into prison. James is beheaded, and Peter's in prison, and he's actually asleep the night before he's supposed to be beheaded. That's interesting that he's got that kind of calm the night before he's supposed to be. But the angels come and let him out. The angels come and let him out. Why do they let him out and they don't let James out? And every once in a while, every one of us, sometime in our life, we're going to have a time when we're not going to be let out of the, the prison of our imminent death. We're going to die. But you know what? If this world was the only thing, that would be tragic. But this world isn't. We get to go home and be with Jesus. So each of us seeks to do the best we can in the time that we're here, while we're here. But each of us can have the confidence that God, who has allowed us here, every every Paul even says it in Philippians one. He says, "If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me." That means Paul saw that if he had breath in his lungs, God had purposes for him being here. So he had his head on a swivel; he's looking for the purposes all around him. He did remarkable things. But there will come a time when God says, "Okay, your, your your day is done. It's time for you to come home," and that's that's going to be okay too. But until then, be confident that God's working in you and through you in the events that you find yourself in and in the circumstances where you find yourself. I think that's how we're supposed to live our life.
1: Jerry, you talked a little bit earlier about being filled with the Spirit, and and so I'm hearing about how the Spirit is present with us all day long. But what's the difference between that and being filled with the Spirit? Because you you do read in the book of Acts, and pretty crazy things begin to happen when the disciples or the followers are being described as being filled with the Spirit. So, yeah, I would love to hear more about how that's different than sort of the daily presence of the Spirit.
2: Well, what's interesting is a new Christian, I was nurtured by a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Now they go by Crew. And they used to talk about this thing called spiritual breathing. If you find that you have not been walking with the Lord, you need to exhale, confess your sins, and you need to inhale, say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. And the scriptures are explicit about that, too. It says, and this is a confidence which we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us from whatever we ask, we know we have the request which we have asked from him. So I ask him to fill me with his spirit, and I could be confident of that. But this, this idea of exhaling, this idea of confession. <clears throat> In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Greek word for confession there is homilageo. It's the same word that is used to speak of a, of a class that a seminarian takes on preaching. It's called homiletics. The word literally means to say the same thing. So, the goal would be that the preacher taking this class would learn to say as best as possible what the scriptures actually say when they preach a sermon. When I confess my sins, I'm saying about my heart what I know God already knows about me. And I'm moving into the realm of self awareness as I confess my sins. And I I catch myself sometimes in my prayers of confession each day, Lord. This is what I know right now I need to lay before you. I'm not happy about it. I'm grateful, though, that I can share it with you and that you have already forgiven me of those things. But, Lord, this is just what I know. I don't know about a lot of other stuff. I am so grateful to you that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose infinite expression of forgiveness even goes down into those places and cleanses me where I don't even know to confess it. But in the meantime, I want to move in the realm of self-awareness. And Lord, I offer these things to you. That's confession. Then Lord, fill me with your spirit, and, and we go. We go serve him. I pray that prayer, Lord. I confess this to you. Fill me with your spirit several times each day. I want to be mindful. I want to cultivate the habit of mindfulness. Again, it doesn't happen like the infant newborn christian and then moses coming down from mount sinai in one day but i think these things happen over time i've been a christian now for over for uh over 50 years and 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 i still feel like i'm a baby i know intellectually i'm just a pea brain (laughs) you know the the, uh, Widener library at harvard has 19 million volumes under that one roof who's read them all Anybody who thinks they know something is an idiot, we just, we're pea brains. And as Christians, we're always, we're always on the stretch. We're always, and some, you think about what we're going to be one day when we're with Jesus. And in this life, we're, we're just infants. Matter of fact, Calvin even said about the Bible that he thought it was divine baby talk, that God had to dumb down his concepts and ideas for we who are so, so immature, so young, as far as eternity is concerned, but to make it accessible for us so that we can know some things. I think that's that's wonderful. Mm-hmm.
0: Jerry, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, the phrase, sword of the Spirit, I think is, is found only once in Scripture.
2: And it's yeah.
0: uh, it's an offensive... The Word of God. Yeah, it's an offensive and defensive weapon. Um, but this is a weapon that belongs only to the Holy Spirit. Now, we're supposed to be trained to know how to properly handle the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, that is going to feel like a big challenge to people thinking, well, what if I go out there and I don't handle the Word of God properly? Uh, And I know earlier you had talked about how you make uh, progress by failing and going out and trying and trying to develop your ability to, to share your faith. But is that standing in the way of a lot of people sharing their faith, that they don't feel they're properly trained? And can handle the Word well, of God.
2: It could, but we, you know, even it, it's a it's a misnomer, isn't it? Properly trained. What does that mean? I don't know. That's <laughs> why I'm That's asking you. Maybe, maybe maybe I need to say, am, am I where I should be at this stage in my life? Because if if I start saying properly trained, okay, there there was a time um, when I when I first became a Christian, I thought I should know the Bible, so I read through it from cover to cover. Right right when I started out in college. And I remember getting to seminary. I'd read it through probably four times every year in college. I read through the Bible. And when I got to seminary, I met guys who were preparing for ministry who had never even read the Bible through from cover to cover. It surprised me. I've just finished my 50th read through the Bible, and I've read the New Testament 35 times before, besides that, and the Greek Bible twice. And the thing is, every time I open it up, I see something I never saw before. And, and I talk to other Christians, and they say, same with me. Every time I open it, I see something I haven't seen before. Well, if that's true, what does properly trained mean? That means if <laughs> that's I'm a gonna, great point. <laughs> if, if, if I'm going to keep learning more and more about this book, so then you go study Greek, and you study Hebrew, and you study theology. Well, that gives you a little bit wider horizon on understanding the book. But anybody who studied those things who says, well, yep, I've got it all figured out, I can check every box, and I know all about it now. I have achieved omniscience. That person needs a therapist. <laughs> so, so it doesn't go like that. We're, we're properly trained, I think, has to be. Am, am I adequately trained for where I should be in my own Christian walk? And if I'm not, then go get some more, some some more input. But don't don't put your life on hold until that's done. Um. You know, how would it be if a person said, yeah, I just got married and I realize now after the honeymoon, there's some things I don't understand. So I think I'm going to go away to a mountain someplace and be in a monastery for another year before I can figure out how to do the next week. <laughs> it doesn't work like that.
0: You can offer that seminar, Jerry, that. but I don't think it'll be popular.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's funny to me how we sometimes will approach a spiritual life and our life with Christ differently than we approach life generally. And, and nobody would do that. Nobody'd say, wow, you know, my first day at work and I don't quite know what I'm supposed to do here. I'm new. So therefore I'm going to quit. Mm-hmm. No, we say, I know what I've got to learn how to do and I'm going to go learn it. So I'll be successful. Yeah, And I, I, I think this too is really important. You can always ask a public question. What's your name? If you meet a person in Chicago, you could say, are you from Chicago? It's a public question. They're standing in Chicago. Listen to the answer. One time I met a guy named Peter in Chicago. I said, are you from Chicago? And he said, no, I grew up in Albuquerque, but when my parents divorced when I was 12, I moved to Chicago with my mother. He didn't have to tell me that. We had just met. But he told me some very personal things. And that opened the door for me then to ask questions about that because every answer gives you permission to ask about things given in the answer. And you can go deeper and deeper until you find the deep belt need where God's already tugging at their heart. and They're wondering how they're going to make sense of that experience. And you know exactly how to craft the gospel message to help that person see how deeply they're loved by God, how rich is his forgiveness, and how willing he is to enter their life as Lord to help them begin the process of bringing order out of any chaos in their life. It's wonderful.
0: It is wonderful. We're gonna take a little break. Doctor Jerry Root is our guest on our Salvation Series with Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have uh, Dr. Jerry Roode as our guest. He's the professor of evangelism, director of evangelism initiative at Wheaton College. Uh, Peter, I would say that uh, we're, we're getting, I, I don't know about you, but I'm learning a lot from, from Jerry. And, you know, one of the things that I, I want to ask is the assurance part of salvation. I mean, when we are confident that we are loved and belong, to me, that's sometimes I think that's one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. To make us feel assured, assured that we are uh, His and that we are loved. What's your thoughts on that? Either
2: or well, I think I think that I think that's true. But you were talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is a Word of God. The Holy Spirit could give us that kind of assurance. But I also think that He leads us to the Word. where are in the Word. We see these verses that that think, things Jesus said. You know, for God so loved the world. The verse, the first verse, so many of us learned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or Jesus in John six forty seven, truly, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. But it's not just forever. Jesus says in John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's a relationship with the loving God of the universe. God is love. How great is His love? Well, I, I believe this with all my heart. He never stopped loving Satan. He can't stop loving him because God is love, and Satan's rebellion doesn't diminish God's character. The tragedy of Satan is not that he's unloved by God; is that he is so incorrigible he refuses to accept it. And I think that's overwhelming. There's assurance for you in the love of God and in the promises He's made in His Word, which the Holy Spirit, of course, will always be echoing in your life.
1: And Jerry, I love what you were saying, too, just a little bit earlier about, <clears throat> you know, the need to go back to the text like that, to to remember the assurance piece of it, and and even the idea that why do we think as initial followers and disciples that we have it all together, right, right away? Like, why do we think that works differently than other parts in life? When you look at those early disciples, they were disasters when they first started yes to following <laughs> Jesus. They fell asleep in the garden. They uh, they denied Jesus. They were trying to vie for who was going to have the most important place in, in heaven itself. So this is really a process of saying yes and growing in wisdom and stature and power as you allow the Holy Spirit to govern your life.
2: This is, this is very... Su- uh, true. And if you look at all of our heroes in the Bible, they all could have introduced themselves in some sort of a recovery group. Here's Noah. Hello, my name's Noah, and I'm a drunk. <laughs> or how about, hi, my name's er- Abraham, and I'm a liar and a coward. I would tell a lie that would put my wife's life at risk rather than risk anything myself. Hi, we're Isaac and Rebecca, and we're dysfunctional parents. <laughs> hi, my name's Jacob, and I'm a cheater and a scoundrel. Hi, my name's Miriam, and I'm very jealous of my little brother Moses, and I'm a racist. I'm upset about his interracial marriage. Hi, my name's Aaron. I'm a religious leader, and I cave into peer pressure. Hi, my name is Moses, and I'm a hothead and a murderer. Hi, my name's Rahab, and I'm a harlot. Hi, my name's Samson. I struggle with lust. Hi, my name's David. I'm an adulterer and a murderer. Hi, my name's Solomon. I'm supposed to be wise, but I'm extremely intemperate. Hi, my name's Elijah. I struggle with depression. Hi, my name's Thomas. I struggle with doubt. Hi, my name's Peter. I let down my best friend when he needed me most. Hi, my name is Paul. I'm a (laughs) Christian killer, and I'm really hard to work with. (laughs) But Paul says... Power is perfected in weakness, that level of honesty. It gets back to First John 1, 9, that word homilageo, to confess, to move into self-awareness. And a self-aware person says, my need for Jesus is not casual, it is constant, constant. And all of a sudden, we start finding expressions of grace in our life. There's, there's a wonderful book by Anne Lamott called All New People. It's a novel. It's a coming-of-age novel. And there's this young girl, and she's, she's in this family. The mother's a Christian, but she's kind of crusty. The father's a womanizer. He abandons a family. And the mother and the daughter are having a discussion about grace. And, and, and they say, what sound does grace make? And the mother says, that's like asking, what does a one-hand clap sound like? And the girl remembers a Japanese part, uh, proverb. And she says, oh, well, the Japanese have a proverb. What sound does rain make? doesn't make a sound till it hits something an umbrella, a hat, a puddle, and the narrative stops there. And you remember as a reader, they were talking about grace. What sound does grace make? It doesn't make a sound till it hits something, a broken heart and a strange relationship, an area of temptation I haven't gained victory over yet. That's life. That's the life that we're called to live. And we're called not to live in the muck of it and in the sewer of it. We're called to live through it, and and, and and to learn to be triumphant. It was, it was I think it was Winston Churchill said, "If you find yourself going through hell, keep on going. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, you don't stay there. You're going to grow, but that's where you're going to encounter grace. In the place where where life is messed up, that's the sound grace makes that's awesome. when it hits these places.
0: Yeah. yeah, Jerry. One of the goals and one of the hopes that I had when I started this series was that we would talk about salvation, but At the end of every hour or towards the end of it, we would give people an understanding that if they have not invited Christ into their life, that there couldn't be a better time than right now. Would you be willing to uh, help us with that?
2: How much time do we have? Four minutes. Okay. Um, John Muir, when he first went to Glacier Bay, was on a mission trip an evangelistic mission trip while he was studying the glaciers. There were two Indian tribes that were having war with each other 30 years before he got there. And they were trying to present the gospel to these Indian tribes. And they found out that 30 years earlier during this war, one of the chiefs said to the other chief, we've got to stop this war. All of our people are going to die. We've got to start drying fish. We've got to start getting food ready so we could survive the winter. And the other chief said, you're right. But he said to the first chief, but your tribe has killed 10 more than our tribe has killed. And the first chief looked at the second chief and said, my life is worth 10 of my men. And the second chief said, you're right. And that chief gave up his life to save his men. And when they presented the gospel to those tribes, those tribes knew what atonement was all about, that Christ had come to die, to set us free. Now, what is that like? C.S. Lewis said he didn't think he could know God personally any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare before he became a Christian. And then it dawned on him after a late night talk with J.R.R. R. Tolkien that in fact, if Hamlet could ever get to know Shakespeare, it couldn't depend upon Hamlet breaking out of the play to get to know the author. But in fact, Shakespeare could have written himself into the play as Shakespeare the character and made the introduction between Shakespeare and Hamlet possible. And he said, in fact, that's what God did in the incarnation. And he encountered Christ. And I think anybody who's honest about life knows they long to be loved unconditionally. Human love is great as far as it goes, but we've probably never been loved unconditionally by another human being. And everybody who's honest about life knows they're messed up. We believe in the high ideal of love, but we've had sharp words with people we say we love most in the world. All of us have fallen short. The Bible calls that sin. And this God who loves us forgives us of that because. Christ has forgiven us in his death and resurrection. See, List said somehow the death of Christ sets us right with God. And then that God, if we invite him into our life, enters his Lord and begins the process. It's a process of bringing order out of chaos. And anybody who wants to trust that can simply by an act of prayer, say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I open my heart to you and invite you to come into my life. I confess my sin, and I accept your forgiveness. Make me the person you want me to be, and thank you for the hope of eternal life. And I think we can do it just like that.
0: This is wonderful. Jerry, uh, you're amazing, amazing and gifted communicator, even though you think you aren't sometimes. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: I it mean, it's Profound, Jerry, just that idea of what disasters we are and being not comfortable in that disaster, but comfortable in the idea that God rescues us from that disaster. I could have listened to you go through that litany of biblical characters as if they're part of a recovery group for hours because it's just... Well, we keep adding, adding to the right? list.
2: Right. We've added right. to the list ourselves, you know. Yeah. but That
0: is all the time we have. Jerry, thank you so much for doing and uh, being part of our Salvation Series.
2: Thank you for letting me. I'm grateful.
0: Yeah, Dr. Jerry root has been our guest. That's uh, all the time we have. We will uh, uh, be back at it next week with Dr. Peter Kapsner. Thanks, Peter. It's great. Just amazing stuff. And again, a special thanks to Dr. Jerry Root and Peter Kapstner. What a wonderful hour that was. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I have loved being with you. I hope you have a wonderful evening. I'll see you tomorrow as you lay your head on that pillow. Just be certain God is working out his great plan in your life. Have a good night. Faith Radio offers help in staying focused on what really matters.
1: It's a radio station that blesses me and keeps my focus on God. I'm always thinking about God and what I can do for other people because of it, you know, just how we can help and the way you guys spread the word through us and then we spread it on down the line. So it, it's just a beautiful chain of love going through. Connecting faith to life
0: together on Faith Radio.